Asia Tech Podcast. Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. My name is Graham Brown. Today, feeling privileged, I'm joined by possibly one of the leading names. If you go back to the birth of the Apple iPhone and the growth of Apple in the telecoms industry, one of the names who really nailed that and helped us understood that with some really in-depth analysis. This man, Horace Dedu. Horace Dedu, analyst or principal analyst and founder of Asimco. You'll probably be familiar with the Asimco website, which, you know, I mean, if you're into data, well, there's data for days in that website. Gave, delivered some great analysis on telecoms and disruption technology in general. Horace, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. We've got a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about what happened in telecoms. We're going to talk about disruption in general and transportation, disruption in new emerging technology fields and Asia. But let's talk about how you established yourself with Asimco and how that sort of really rose to prominence and how people kind of found out about that because you really developed your name for yourself. Where, where did that all sort of happen? Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a kind of peculiar story. I I was an analyst at Nokia, so this was uh, Nokia between 2001 and 2009. So I was there about nine years. Uh, prior to that, I did a, a very various things. I I was an entrepreneur. I was working in some larger firms as well. Back all the way back to the 90s when my career started. Mm. But when I was at Nokia, I was uh, um, I was an analyst, which uh, developed I you know particular you know type of analysis for large companies. So things like slides, presentations, data uh, analysis. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. Um, in the space of smartphones, which was a really interesting space from 2001 till 2010, and um, emerging space. And um, and I was frustrated because I, I, you know, I, my customer, my audience was was upper management, and mm. they were few in number and typically not very responsive. Wouldn't give you a lot of feedback if they if they gave you any at all. And my frustration uh, was that I didn't know how to get better at what I was doing without feedback. I needed to have that sort of uh, reinforcement by by either critique or 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 praise and. And so what I started doing internally is is writing for a blog that was available. Just it was an emerging thing at the time for internal blogs, and I started writing. And eventually, you know, I was delighted to have five hundred people in my audience, and um, and and they would just engage. And there was all this back and forth, and people are saying good things and bad things, and that's all good. And I was learning, and I was re- learning to write as well, and sort of writing in an online forum, and. Um, you know, going from PowerPoint sliders are very terse and try to be as succinct as possible, a little bit more having a little the option to do a little bit more, um, let's say, um, uh, color and adding a little mm-hmm. bit more more richness. And th- th- that taught me something. And then when I left Nokia in 2009, I started doing something else entirely. I went into into actually energy and solar energy in particular. And uh, work, help working us with a startup there, but people were back inside Nokia wrote to me and said, "Hey, why don't you keep doing what you were doing? We were enjoying your updates and your interesting commentary." Mm. And so what I did is I created a Simco right in 2010, so the year after I left, just so that I would sort of maintain that enjoyed enjoying that you know that camaraderie that that friendship with my friends 
uh, with, with within the company. And and so um, that interesting time, though, the, the timing is everything. In 2010, um, although the iPhone was already three years old, mm. um, it in the it just began to pick up dramatically. And and so. My commentary began to be picked up by people in the Apple community. And this I'm thinking of uh, John Gruber, who is one of the preeminent bloggers on, on Apple. And he started the bike like early 2000s. And in and, and my commentary about what was going on with the with this juxtaposition iPhone and 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 and, and Nokia um, sort of I was explaining why things were going the way they were going and the history of phones in general. Mm. And and a lot of people who are from the Apple community, let's say developers and, and engineers, were were familiar with the computing history, but they were not so familiar with with what happened in the phone space. You know, we had dynamics there which were international, with things happening in Japan, things happening in China, things happening in Europe, which most of the people who were following Apple and were Apple, you know, sort of enthusiasts were mostly U.S. based. And so that they wanted to learn what happened for the last 20 years. And so that was how it all started because John Gruber had, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers started quoting me mm. and started pointing at my website. Suddenly, I just gained an audience. And that meant that I started getting really much better at uh, uh, shaping my message to that audience. And that, that's, again, the, to me, the the magic of online has been that you learn a lot more. The more you give, the more you get back. Mm. And so I started to give as much as I could. And I just put out all the data I could and all the analysis I could. I, I, I just uh, uh, was, was, it was a tremendous feedback loop. And, and that's what built the brand and, and, and the reputation. Yeah, it's a great story. And I think for those listeners, maybe familiar with your name or, or have seen it or the work of a Simcoe, they may be familiar with you know, the work that you have done. But I, I remember back in the, at the time, because I, I was working in the mobile industry, that you were like one of the names to really unpack Apple and help us understand mm. it. And I think you, you got the epithet king of the Apple analysts at some point, yeah. didn't you? How, how did that come about? Well, that's that's a great story. So, so again, I was not an Apple analyst per se. I thought I didn't think of myself, but it just, it just resonated because that was a booming area. So what happened was... When I was inside Nokia, this is a little bit of a longer story, but when I was inside Nokia, I was also kind of telling people inside the company, look, Apple is really a force to be reckoned with. They've done yeah. a tremendous job with the iPod. And then they were, you know, when the iPhone launched in 2007, I said, you know, if we assume, just assume for a moment that they're going to do as well with the iPod, iPhone as they did with the iPod, I think this is going to be a massive hit. There was a lot of skepticism around that. Now, in order to overcome the skepticism, I had to build a model of the sales of the iPhone. In other words, a projection or a sort of a, a forecast of the iPhone, which I knew how to do because I've been doing this for smartphones for a while before the iPhone. And so when I began looking at iPhone dynamics, I said, well, let's index something about their growth in terms of market share, in terms of their unit volumes and so on. Knowing that with the iPod, they did a, an amazing job ramping that up, you know, getting the supply chain and everything else. So I'm b building a, a model of this. And in doing so, I'm also pulling data on what other analysts have been saying about Apple over the years. So this is when I finally started to pull these, you know, what are called the Wall Street analyst reports and, and sort of looking through their models and understanding how they look at it. And what cu was curious to me is that they were modeling Apple using computer 
numbers, computer scale, let's say, PC scale. So, you know, all the analysts came from the PC industry. But I was coming from the phone industry, and I knew the numbers were much bigger in the phone space. And I was a little bit, like, taken aback by the fact that analysts who were following Apple professionally didn't have the ambition or the growth. You know, they would dial in 20 30% growth, which is phenomenal for a PC. But I would say, you know, no, 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 this is going to go double 100% growth or more for several years because the market is so much bigger for phones. Mm-hmm. And so when I when I did that, my own projections of Apple were more ambitious than either Nokia, and certainly Nokia didn't believe that they could grow as fast as they did, and, and more ambitious than what the analysts were saying. And I just had, had a little hint that, you know, if this is a hit, it's going to be a much bigger hit than people expected. Now, having said that, um, I once I was outside, the there was a there was a, a, a another a professional blogger by the name of Philip Elmer DeWitt, and he worked for Fortune at the time, and he had a blog called Apple 2.0, mm. and this was a place where he you know put put forward news about Apple, and he, one of those things is that he aggregated uh, analyst estimates, and there were a couple of amateurs at the time who were starting out making their own estimates and he was nice enough to include us and so i was one of those early um amateurs if you will because i was out of nokia at the time and i put forward my estimates because again i had spent time inside trying to figure this out and um and so what happened was for a couple of quarters early on i was just nailing the numbers because i was putting out essentially a growth rate of 100%, whereas everyone was sort of, me, you know, 20, 30, and they were getting 100%. Again, from a very low base, it wasn't hard for me to imagine them doing that. Um, And so so because I was just becoming the most accurate forecaster for a couple of periods – um, and again, that that did not last forever, mind you. But but it, it did uh, it did sort of establish my accuracy at the early de- in the early days. And 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 so it was it was Philip who who put forth that moniker. He wrote a piece about me saying the new uh, king of Apple analysts, and that's that's kind of where it stuck. When when you received that moniker, when you just sort of realized you were building an audience, and you were making quite bold predictions because let's put it into context is pretty much everybody at Nokia apart from maybe a few people thought that you're crazy I guess you know that that yeah. wasn't the case and that it couldn't be and you know you you, just, you know you're nuts etc cetera, etc cetera. and all the other analysts were quite bearish as well because they're basing it on you know historical precedent is that when you were doing that, did you ever sort of look at yourself and think, did you ever get that sort of imposter syndrome? Actually, uh, you know, why? Oh, yeah. I, oh. Can you describe that? Because I'm always curious, like you're, you're in a position of like for the moment, you know, all the stars align and now the world's looking at you. How did that feel? Yeah, no, it, it is very much a feeling of being an imposter. And I think that's the right term. I, the, 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 when, when you are not uh, professional, quote unquote, about it. I mean, you you didn't spend twenty years doing this. In fact, I, I I was trained as an engineer, and I I spent probably the last the first ten years of my career as an engineer in software, and and uh, um, and and I was actually also trained as a hardware engineer, but I didn't practice hardware engineering, but I I, I did a lot of software work, and. Um, and I just felt that the business world was a mystery and I didn't know and I'm, I did not understand it. I went to business school to try to figure that out, actually. That was kind of like my naive, my naive notion that if you go to business school, <laughs> you learn about business uh, and how it works as if it were sort of a science. But it isn't a science. And 
And and so when I when I was I was still feeling like I, I don't know what I'm doing uh, either in being an analyst or being a, uh, you know I knew the language a bit better and I knew some principles but I, I I felt the guys on Wall Street were doing their jobs and using this funny language in their reports that I couldn't understand and uh, and, and and all of this stuff and I just felt like it was not I was not of their caliber. And but but the numbers were starting to prove that they were wrong, and I was right at least on some on on some basis. And that's kind of like okay, I began to say I gained a little bit of confidence. And also, what I try to do is bring Clay Christensen's theory into bearing. Mm. Um, and the, the the reason Clay was very important in my life is that he too kind of didn't use the the complexity of language. He didn't hide behind uh, these 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 grand grand. Um, uh, uh, obfuscations, I call them. Um, he, he the, you know, he said actually the world is a lot simpler, and and that that there are causalities for things which seem complicated that are that are quite simple. Mm. And so I try to use, I sort of channeled his uh, his 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 thought process, and let's break this down to causes. Let's understand why things are the way they are, and 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 if there is complexity, it's probably hiding something else. And and you know, at the core of a lot of his teachings are are very moral issues, like things like humility and things like being uh, being patient, uh, virtues that are are ingrained in 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 uh, you know in the great teachings uh, of of uh, you know spiritual leaders, if you will. Um, and, you know, he's a very religious man, um, and and so I I I try to say, look, and, and again, coming out. Um, into a world where everybody is, is being hyper and hyper analytical, I'm trying to say, look, there's actually very something very simple about Apple's success. Um, and when you listen to Apple management, they also sound very simplistic about their success. They say, we just make great products. Our North Star mm. is great product. And it's almost like asking a, a great sports athlete, you know, what's the secret to your success? And they would say things like, well, I train every day. And then, you know, I, 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 I you know, I, I aim to improving my work every day. And Wasan says that, yeah, but how do you do that amazing yeah, yeah. thing you do? And you say, well, you know, it turns out not to be a very complicated formula. There's a lot of persistence and a lot of dedication. Um, and yes, you need to have some physical ability, but, you know, in the case of Apple, you need to have great people. But but it boils down to just refining and refining and refining and dedicating and having that North Star, having that guiding principle that says, you know, we won't get distracted by by competitive issues. We're going to get distracted by macroeconomic issues. We're not going to get distracted by optimization itself, which is, by the way, one of the great chimeras, one of the great mirages out there that you always have to optimize. And that's what MBAs are trained to do. But, it, you know, the, the whole process of optimization, you have to have something to optimize. And then the, the whole question of what is your core principle. And so the more I, the more I observed Apple, the more I observed great companies, the more I realized that there was a very simple guiding principle there. And I kept repeating that in my stories about, oh, here's the great data. So this is the structure of an asymco post. You begin with, isn't this interesting? Let's look at this data. Hmm. Let's graph it and make it visually visually uh, um, obvious. And then, then the next step is to say, but what's really happening is much more profound, which actually the data only hints at. And so the, the idea is that that at the end, there's few, people feel like, okay, there's something much more than the data. Because another thing that Christensen teaches is that the data we have is only the data we collect. And there's a lot more data that we, is not, we do not collect, and yet the truth might be there. And so let's be careful about data. We need it, mm. but it's not 
it's not sufficient. And so that was the that was became kind of, if you will, the the the, the emotional angle uh, coupled with the analytical angle, which I think brought people to say, okay, this is worth passing on to others, which is the way you win and online, you don't win, but just reading uh, or having people read it, mm. but, but uh, passing it on to others. Now, this is fascinating. So it, it's that you have the analytical angle, you have the emotional angle, which is a bit of instinct on your behalf as well, that you, you can sort of see how all these patterns come together. And then I suppose you're taking a risk as well to put your name out there because there's always that sort of hesitation when you hit publish or have I said too much? Have I gone too far? Have I been too aggressive? Have I been too optimistic? And so on. Yeah, it's funny. I just had this episode and sort of in, in, afterwards, you feel a little bit of guilt. I, yeah. I had this episode <laughs> where I, I had to explain Apple's cash situation. And this was after the the new rules were 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 uh, applying that, you know, that the, the, the Trump administration changed the, 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 the repatriation tax on, on. And I sort of gave a discussion of of and and. Accountants and financiers will discuss this at at, at infinitum on, on on just what does it mean to have two hundred fifty billion dollars offshore. Mm. But I said, you know, fundamentally, who owns this money? What is it for? What is Apple doing in in, in these in the, in this context? It's like let's break it down to as simple as possible, and it's not that. There, there isn't. This isn't all that complicated. You, you can reduce Apple to a black box and say, you know, it's a machine that that takes some money in, t- puts out more money than it takes in, and all that simplicity, you know, and sort of, and it, you feel like some t- somehow you're sort of dumbing things down. But that was a, the sort of article that um, I did more and more in the later stages, where I try to simplify things, yeah. perhaps too much, but I. And, and a lot of people from the you know the analyst community were like we're we're really disappointed in this latest po- you know this latest posting you made because you you, you sort of missed completely what's going on. I'm like I'm sorry about that, but yeah, yeah I, I, I'm trying to bring almost a sort of a poetry to it, and um, and that that that's perhaps what I what I feel best about is you know Steve Jobs was able to synthesize this great complexity of technology mm. down to very human terms and although then he gets accused and and he he, he you know condemned for uh, you know oversimplifying or just completely misleading even with his with his generalizations at the end of the day though he was right and that's what we we always appreciate that he was right in the 90s about the importance of design the importance mm. of human user experience and 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 the you know the pedantic way of approaching it would you know doesn't lead to to greatness. And so my my question is again, what what does it mean to be great? And that that's what that's what I called my podcast subtitle is like, how do we find out what greatness means? Yeah, yeah. A big part of that must be criticism. That's a good measure, isn't it? That if you're not yeah. getting criticized, you're not saying anything, right? Yeah, uh, and, and you have to put your neck out exactly. exactly. In the safe. That's that's leadership, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You got it. So so years ago, I mean, um, where I came about sort of your work is I was in telecoms. I was an analyst. I set up a business called Mobile Youth in 2000. And, um, you know, before moving back to Europe, I'd lived in Japan and I'd seen young people, teenagers using mobile phones. And I thought, well, this is something. And, you know, like you say, it's something very simple. It's not, not complicated. Young people are using mobile phones. And then you sort of come back to the West and they're all using bricks. And you thought, well, this is going to change. And then I realized that there was an opportunity because my background was in 
um, research and tech. So I thought, well, I'll start writing about this and see if anybody's interested. And so in 2000, I started writing about young people and mobile phones. I started knock- knocking on the doors of Nokia. And Nokia told me, you know, we don't do kids. This is like 2000, mm. you know, obviously long before all the telecoms companies had discovered, you know, value-added services and SMS and all that. And uh, I remember at one point, I think it was about 2006 when the iPhone came out, 2006, 2007, and BlackBerry obviously was still big then as well. So I went to Nokia and I did a presentation to Nokia because at the time I was getting paid for it now, doing these presentations. And I presented to, I I can't remember where it was in the world, but I was basically showing them clips of young people talking about mobile phones. And, you know, at the time before, so if you wind back a couple of years, young people were one of the main reasons that Nokia became a global brand because they were the ones that were using text messages. They're the ones that were sharing it with everybody and so on. They were like driving force behind their brand, making it cool. And um, I started showing them videos of young people sort of now a little bit confused about Nokia. They're saying, well, we're not sure about the latest version. I kind of like BlackBerry now. And you know, I kind of like this new iPhone coming out you know, 2007, 2008, we kind of like this. And I'm not so hot on Nokia anymore. And I remember showing it to the the executives and they were like, yeah, well, these kids don't matter. And I thought, well, (laughs) I wish I had videoed that presentation, that interview. I I just wonder, I mean, you know, going back to the works of Clay Christensen, like how these organizations, I mean, I'm not picking on Nokia, but I'm just saying, they were a leader and it could absolutely, happen to absolutely. Well, so right? the, I mean, the thing about young people in general are are a low segment of the economy in terms of their you know their wealth and their uh, certainly their productivity and so on and a lot of people just assume you should go to where the money is and that's people who have it and people who make it and right. and this is the this is the paradox is that the profits are there but the 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 change, the innovation, is not there. And what what Christian has a term called the rebar of society. Rebar is this term from the steel industry, stands for reinforcing bar. It's the lowest segment of the market in terms of the cheapest steel you can buy is that rebar which goes inside of concrete and reinforces it and makes a building stand up or a bridge, and that rebar is if you're going to make a steel company, that's the cheapest product that has almost no margin and it's just the disposable kind of part of your business. And so when a newcomer comes, that's what they begin with. So if China or Korea started their steel industries, they started with rebar. Right. And if you're yeah. going to build a mini mill, which is you know taking scrap steel and making it into steel, you're going to produce rebar because it's the cheapest to get started with. And yet those who start with rebar begin to move up market and they start making more complex steel products mm. you know, to the top of the market, which is actually sheet steel used in automotive and that's a very high grade steel very very precisely done and 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 that needs to have high high degree of um of you know uh, tolerance and purity and so on and and when you see the market and you stratify it and sort of from the lowest to the highest and you do the same for humanity you see that there's the sort of this low end opportunity and 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 when you ask well who sells to that low end and who sells at the high end now i'll give you an example from today's world and I'm going to tell you about um, television and, and, and movies and video and, and that market. And, and if you think about that and you ask, 
okay, what, what are the proper ways of segmenting this, this market? And of course, you're going to start with geography and you're going to start with demography. So you're going to say, well, people of certain ages in certain locations, these are the interesting segments. But if you look at this idea of sort of, well, but how do minutes get spent? Who is the, who, who are the audiences? And then you start to uncover great opportunity. And I'll give you one hint here. And it's that if you look at online consumption of video, it's not really Netflix that's the big, big opportunity. Netflix is taking on households, which are, you know, high earning households, and then eventually, you know, maybe middle, middle uh, earning households. But the most interesting uh, viewing that's going on, in my opinion, are is YouTube. And YouTube is, is, is phenomenal, yes. because yeah. actually children watch it. And the reason children are watching yes. it is because it's got, you sort of it, 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 there's a lot of unpleasantness about it, but the point is that you know they have an appetite for short videos, and they're not really excited about these long form videos, which everyone is spending billions to create, right? Whether it's Netflix or now yeah. Apple, maybe Amazon, you know, with Prime, and trying to actually spend tens of billions of dollars to create original content, which is long form drama and and generally expensive. But YouTube videos, you've got people creating YouTube videos for you know single digit dollars right and they're making they're making for themselves you know yeah. 80 million followers and most of those will be children now what's interesting then is that um the views and the measurements and why why youtube f f you know flies under the radar is because under age 13 marketers are not allowed to measure that audience they're not allowed to mm. to address that audience because of again the law pro prohibits this and that there's a good reason for that but what that as a consequence means is that children making videos for other children or or even adults making children's children children's videos it, it's it's just that this invisible opportunity and i think that mm. generation that grows up with youtube videos like my son for example it never watches TV, mm. never will watch even a movie in the same. What yeah. is TV? I mean, how old is your son now? now? And he grew up. Uh, same really, as mine. Yeah, he grew they, up. Uh, all the time yeah, on YouTube. Exactly. And, That's and, the and rebar, they're the rebar, right? rebar of society in the sense that they're, they're not interesting to yeah. the big, big spenders. They're not interesting to marketers. And yet when they, when yeah. they grow up, their consumption patterns will be completely different. So if 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 you're you're a YouTube personality today and you've sort of created an eighty, and that's a shocking mm. thing to me is that the numbers are so different. The, the numbers on a on a on a you know on a television show, even something as popular as let's say Top Gear, which became you know they moved on to become this um, um, uh, under uh, under Amazon um, Grand Tour. Yeah. Grand Tour yeah. I mean, they probably get tens of, you know, tens of millions of viewers. And maybe, you know, at its peak, I think Top Gear was, you know, had an audience of 300 million. And you'll have easily uh, online, you know, sort of YouTube personalities with, with uh, uh, million, million view, uh, you know, for every every video they put up. And these are just people doing it in their own homes and doing it in their, in, in their own, on their own machines. And so I follow a few things on, on YouTube, you know, related to automotive and, and, you know, guys talking about cars and stuff like that. And, and it's just amazing, you know, see, a, 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 you know, just a guy talk about his car and he gets like 300,000 views. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. And, and what, what I think your, your, your anecdote about Nokia is that, is that it's important to look at this 
low end of the market. And it's very tricky to mm. measure. It's very no one really wants to even measure it. And and you have to have an almost an intuition about it. And yeah, that that to me mm. the the great example today is what's going on in video on YouTube. Yeah, no, that, that's a fantastic example as well. Thanks for bringing that up. Let's put that into the context of I, I want to see if we can stretch this to the context of yeah. Asia. Because I mean, effectively, I mean, you, you, you called Apple and, you know, and well done you because you, you put your balls on the line, so to speak, because a lot of people weren't doing it at the time and you, you stepped up to the plate and all the other cliches, but, you know, you, you faced the criticism for doing that and, you know, history proved that you were right, which is great. And now we're in a situation where that I, I think we're at a very interesting sort of inflection point in geopolitical history. Like there's a shift. There's a lot of things coming online about Asia, which now people are looking at Asia and think, well, they're, they're not just about cheap garments anymore. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on. You know, there's innovation, there's technology, there's startup ecosystems and so on. And in my perspective, you know, I'm writing like it, way back in the days about mobile youth, when I was writing about young people at mobile phones, I'm writing about Asia matters. I'm talking about, you know, Asia matters to the world, Asia matters to Silicon Valley. You've got to look at Asia in the sense that this is not just about cheap yep. warehouses and factories anymore. There's a big Asian middle class. From that perspective, how do you go up? Because you're the, you're, you know, I'm now sort of looking at you as, as somebody who can educate me about how to yeah. frame this in context, like you talked about with the rebar. How, how do you go about that? Because it's all just, you know, you go outside of Asia and people say, yeah, well, you know, we'll, we'll deal with that when we get around to it. But it's like the rebar again. Oh, it's on the horizon. How, how do you do that? Asia is an amazing story because I think that. So let me step back before I dive in and just describe America. I think if you go back a century or even a little bit longer, the the, the dynamics that were underway between the, the Europe and, and, and North America in terms of development, in terms of innovation, if you will, you had a situation in the mid-19th century where the heart of innovation was Europe, and, and that meant the UK – uh, Germany and France, but mainly UK, which was developing the Industrial um, Revolution. And so they had come up with almost all the great inventions of that age, from everything from steam engines and steamships and iron hull uh, and, and uh, ships and railroads and, and civil engineering, uh, you know, uh, Brunel's work. And, and, you know, we had this, this uh, tremendous development of factories and, you know, processes for manufacturing from, from the mills in, uh, uh, you know, making uh, uh, garments, as you said. And, and you, you, you know, we had the heart of, of innovation. And what was America at the time was this place with, which was copying everything. The, the steel, the, 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 the steel industry, the, the, the clothing industry mm-hmm. by the mid 19th century that started growing up around Boston based on mills, copied, you know, lock, stock and barrel from, from the UK. And you had gen- generally this notion that the Americans were, were, uh, it was the Wild West, and they were just doing things in, in a very uh, haphazard way. But as they progressed through this copy, copying process, they actually innovated in, in new dimensions. And one of them in the early 20th century was the Ford production system, which said, look, you know, we, we can make all those things that the Europeans can make from bicycles, which were invented in, the Euro- in Europe, to, to, you know, firearms, to, to um, automobiles, which, again, were invented in Europe. And, and they're going to make them cheap and we're going to make them simple and we're going to make them so that everybody can afford them. 
And that was Ford and his sort of sheet stamping and just make him so that the worker themselves can afford it. That was the that was the ethos of, of Henry Ford is like, I want to make a car that my own employees, the worker on the line can afford. And it was a completely crazy idea compared to a European approach of craft work and, and just doing things very well and precisely and, and, and hand handmade things were, 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 were what was valued. And still today, that's the, that's the, that's the image we have of something made in Switzerland or might something made in Italy or something made in, in Germany is that these are, you know, cra- works of craftsmanship. And, 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 and yet the Americans would just stamp them out and just make them cheap. And what that led to though is the 20th century where that process of, of bringing the, the simple to the masses the mass production and mass distribution were, were the great American inventions of the t- early 20th century. So a lot of what we're hearing about Asia is about people copying and then people being sort of having a Wild West attitude. There's a lot of cheating and a lot of, a lot of well, of mm. course, there was a lot of cheating and corruption in the United States in the 20th century. We all know that, or the sort of 19th century even. So they're the, the thinking that is a lot of this is history repeating itself. And by the way, um, I don't want to make, make this a history lesson, but if you look at the UK versus versus continental Europe, it was the same thing going on even even yeah. earlier in the 18th yeah. century where, where it was really a lot of stuff was pioneered further east than, than you know, so we're seeing kind of like this wave mm. going westward. So like first it's the UK who sort of copies a lot of stuff out of the Dutch and others who were innovating before them. And the Dutch, by the way, copied it from the Venetians and the Venetians copied it from the, from the <laughs> you know, from the Middle East. And and so, you you know, you keep moving westward as sort of the, the frontier and, and and, and, and over time, the thing it just repeats where, where there are people who are breaking rules and doing things in a, in a cheaper, you know, more flexible way. And I think this is another uh, Christensen uh, idea is that that is a process that just repeats over and over again because the under underprivileged are the ones who begin to sort of figure out ways of looking at, you know, doing things right. differently. And that, that now Asia's story is on a, such a scale, though, that it's almost like blinding you compared you know you don't see the history because of what's happening the numbers are phenomenal i've i've been i've been trying to get my hands around hands around this the not only is the pop, are the population enormous the number of of markets is enormous the the um first we saw japan then korea and now we're seeing china and now we will see india um and these are these are on such a scale and they're clearly going to become bigger as economies than than anything in the west that's 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 very simple to project. The 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 more interesting question though is what will be the key innovations that will reframe the world as a result of this of this growth? And th- that's what I meant when the U.S. sort of copied they they copied and then enhanced and th- they made it different, they mm. took it in a new direction. I think Asia as a home for innovation of business models. This is where it's interesting. And yes, it, it's unfair. By the way, I'm not saying that you know. There's obviously copying feels unfair. There's a lot of things that are uh, protectionist happening. But again, the U.S. at the time of the 19th and 20th century also had protections in place where essentially home industries were were, were covered with tariffs and other mm-hmm. things. Which yeah. protected, it was, the world was not free trade back then. So when we see a lot of this happening, it's, it's a lot of, again, uh, pattern recognition of, 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 of something that, that's sort of fundamental. And so what, what I, when I look at Asia, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just drop one, one data point, which is I'm, I'm looking at transportation now and I'm looking at, uh, you know, this micro, what I call micro mobility, vehicles which are not quite cars. Again, low end, right? So you look mm. at the vehicles that are not quite cars and you have 
you have great opportunities emerging in China with with bike sharing, with uh, with uh, electric mm. vehicles, which are really small and so-called low-speed electric vehicles, even electric vehicles themselves, which may not meet the same standards of the West, but they're growing phenomenally today in China. So new energy vehicles in China, um, um, uh, micro vehicles in China, shared vehicles in China, all of these things are happening. And, and in, in many ways, there's a wild west uh, uh, atmosphere. There's there's overproduction. There's bubbles. Mm. There's busts. There's booms. All that is true. Uh, it, it's it's not a smooth. No, no revolution is in 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 the sense is smooth. But it's what it does is enables these companies to really reevaluate what what does it mean to to do transportation. Where the U.S. innovated on making cars for every man. Now we might be looking for. You know, uh, a shared infrastructure for every man, and this this is this is phenomenally interesting mm. to me. And and I, I think the, the the keen analyst should be focused on where is the innovation business model rather than just making something cheaper, which is a cost innovation. But let's think about have they figured right. out something different? Like what typical inversion that occurs in the business model innovation is you take something that was considered precious and you make it throw away and you take the opposite as as well. So when, when you look at, at bike sharing in China, for example, you're seeing 16 million bikes and you're seeing companies unafraid to deploy assets on the street. Everyone in the West is like, no, 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 if we're going to make something, we're going to have to sell it or we're going to have to get our money back somehow. And we don't want to keep this on our balance sheet because, you know, assets on our balance sheet will destroy our, all our, these key ratios that we're being valued by, by shareholders on. So you can't go to an automaker and say, instead of selling cars, why don't you keep them and, and rent them out? I mean, that, that would, that would destroy their, their so-called key operating metrics. Whereas in China, there's no such worry. And so you just go ahead and you do things which are, Unorthodox, or or or, or you know, uh, mm. uh, certainly uh, uh, opposite to what what the West would think is is rational. That's where excitement. That's what's exciting. Yeah. So when when media talks about what's exciting, so all the business models, the emerging business models coming out of Asia that you've mentioned, for example, like bike sharing or micro mobility, as an example. I'm curious to know the language that they couch these business models in and how that would have compared. And unfortunately, we can't go back to sort of 1915 or the early 20th century and, you know, dig up tweets and social media posts about, you know, early 20th century US. You know, I'm sh I wonder if, you know, observers that had come from Western Europe went to the US and looked at Ford's production line and heard Ford talk about, you know, a car for every man or listen to Thomas Edison or any of those sort of inventors that were around at the time, whether they would have reacted or are reacting in a similar way to the yeah. way that the West talks about China and Asia today. I think so. I, I it's, you know, we can go back and pull articles. We don't, didn't have Twitter, but we can look at, you know, what what was the what what was the word on the street in the sense of of, of published uh, uh, newspaper articles which are long forgotten but there are archives and you sort of see this this sort of constant skepticism about this this new way of doing things and only after it's a great success do people sit back in awe and wonder. Um, well, I'll give you an example where where this this particular. Um, 
uh, uh, skepticism took root. If you look at Germany, Germany was mm. the home of the invention of the automobile. This was in 1886. So, so Carl Benz patented uh, an internal combustion uh, uh, powered vehicle called the, the patent motorwagen. And, and this is part of uh, automotive lore. The, the sort of the genesis of the car was, was, is, it was in Germany with, with Carl Benz. And, and, and if you go to the Mercedes Museum, you can see a replica and they're very proud of that. But if you think about the timing of that, let's say 1886, that's quite a long time. And then and then you go forward and you say, well, at what point did Germany become the superpower of automotive? Well, it turns out that they did nothing for uh, for uh, about 50 years. Mm. In, in Germany, the, the, the next step after the invention of the automobile was that the French took it up and developed it into what we think of as the modern car today, meaning its layout. They went from three wheels to four wheels. It had the engine in the front and the steering with a, with a steering wheel. It had uh, transmissions. And, and when you think about also the, the language we use about automotive, today a lot of French words have been, have been embedded, like garage or chauffeur or, or, or uh, uh, I forget some of the other ones. I made, I made a mm. list at one time, but it was like a dozen new English words which are essentially from the French. Now, that means that the nursery, kindergarten for the car was in France. France was, was in love with the automobile between 1890 and about 1910. And the, a lot of the innovations were being... Uh, patented there, you know, the layouts and the designs and and so on, Mm. the things that refine the product and make it more usable, but they didn't have the manufacturing necessary to scale that up. And so that, that came with Henry Ford. So, and then we hop over to the, to, to the United States and Henry Ford, everybody's got access to this information. So everybody knows what the car is, the patent and all that other stuff. And, and so the U S is, you know, a thousand car companies are born in between 1900 and 1915 in the United States alone, globally, 3000 car companies are born. Now what's Germany doing? They're watching. Then they're saying, well, no, this, this is crazy. This is not the Mm. way to do things. We will make cars in a very craftsmanlike passion, you know, sort of passionate way. Yes, these these innovations are interesting, but you know they were very conservative. Also, labor laws in Germany did not permit you know assembly line workers. If you're going to touch a piece of metal, you have to have training, you have to have apprenticeship, and you have to have a, you know participation in the guild and all these other things. Now, let me fast forward now. So, so World War One comes around, and Henry Ford is is just getting started, and suddenly you have the need for mass production of vehicles, and and the U.S. is one of the few countries that is able to do that with the Model T, and but it was still too early for that. But by the time World War Two comes around, um, you know the United States manufacturing capacity for automobiles could be transferred into other vehicles, so for example, aviation and aircraft engines and other things could be built similar to automotive engines. Now, in the meantime. Germany has been lagging so far behind that by the time World War II comes along, they have no manufacturing capacity for automobiles. And there is no, there was the Volkswagen as a design by Ferdinand Porsche. And what's interesting when you go back and, and look at that is that it was commissioned by, by Adolf Hitler. And the, the reason he commissioned Porsche to make a people's car was because he was so shocked about Ford getting this huge lead and the Ford system, you know, being a dictator, he was, he was saying, what is wrong with Germany that we cannot do this? So he decided to sort of smash heads 
and bring mm. this system to, 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 to production, bring the Ford production system to Germany because industry was reluctant to pick it up. I mean, the very existence of Volkswagen, the very existence of the interference of a, of a, of a dictator in the production of cars is because the system was, was not doing it voluntarily. And this is what, what's perplexing is then why was German automotive production by the 1920s or 30s so far behind what there was going on in, in the U.S. And this, this panic that set in was said, like, if we're going to be a world power, we need to have this magical production system. So the question then it begs is, what was wrong with Germany? Is this not a place of innovation? Is this not a place of, of brilliant engineering? They certainly had those things. You can see the results after the war. But the thing is that they just didn't have the production system. They didn't have the, the way to organize to develop this this mass market. Uh, and, and it was, again, this is in many ways distasteful to engineers. This is distasteful to people right. who, are, who are sort of aristocratic in their mindset. This is, this is, we don't, the masses don't need cars. And so when you think <laughs> about, again, today and you see repetition again the 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 the, the re allergic reaction people have to some of the things coming out of asia and i see this with bike sharing they say we don't want millions of bikes on our streets this is right. this is pollution this is this is people have we should do it properly we should do it with <laughs> buses and trains and then cars and and the the, the chinese approach is just makes people you know viscerally repulsed and yet again this was something that happened before and we got used to it and we went through an S curve and now it became normative behavior and eventually by the way that that production system of Ford got evolved through the GM production system and then the Toyota production system which evolved to the point where Germany took it in house and at that mm. moment the Germans recovered and now are proud of the fact that they're a world leader in automotive. But it didn't actually, the, the, the number of people in Germany that had cars didn't reach the same number in the U.S. until the 1970s. So it, 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 was, it was a lag of a good 50 years that we, we, we saw in the adoption of, of automobiles as a result of this. So, so what is that when you look at, I mean, that fascinating story about automotive and about how Germany lapsed you know, and let the, the world take the lead where they invented the technology. And then you have this story. I mean, we've mentioned earlier, like Apple moving into the mobile space and everybody thinking, oh, this ain't going to work, you know, because they're only a, uh, a single digit market share. You know, they're nothing. Mm -hmm. And then we also have people now looking at Asia and saying, oh, this is not going to work. They're never going to get up to the, you know, where are the creatives? You know, sure, they can make cheap stuff. What, what is that? What's that parallel between all of this, this pattern that keeps emerging? I, I think it's it's part of the disruption uh, theory. So so look at Japan. Japan begins in 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 you know initially they had jealousy towards the West, and so mm -hmm. the the industrialization of Japan, the opening of Japan in the in the eighteen eighties was partly a reaction to the fact that they were far behind, and then they began to really copy the West in many institutions. So for example, their Certainly, certainly the, the, the history of uh, Japan's institutions of government, government, the military, um, uh, you know, they, they just read the blueprints of the West and said, we're going to replicate this. And so Japan industrialized very quickly in this sort of top down uh, directed approach. And, and it unfortunately led them to also believe that they could become a world power, which led to World War II. But the, the, the post-war, you know, they have been completely like uh, flattened and yet they rose back to to sort of with 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 a certain degree of humility to sort of become uh, a, a global power and 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 
as an economic power, not a military one. What's interesting in Japan, though, is how they reached a point of saturation in terms of their success. And now they have the same reluctance to take risks, yes. the same protection of what we have versus breaking things and moving moving forward. And so in Japan, however, here's one thing that is encouraging about Japan is that as an economy, they, they've also nur- began to nurture some of the innovations that that we think of more on the service level. So we have we do have some pioneers like you know SoftBank. Um, we have you know who are aggressively investing in, in in interesting areas. We also have interesting work done in the arts. I think arts in general are a wonderful indicator of mm. the evolution of society. If if you're able to in, you know, have a film industry, a music industry, if you if you're able to to uh, have your population consume local content because you're creating you know good work it sort of indicates that you've evolved beyond sort of survival you're moving on to the higher levels of of consciousness and um and i think that what i'm encouraged when i travel sometimes in 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 europe uh sorry in in uh, in asia is like i would go to china and i would see japanese arts mm. or, or mm. japanese uh, stores selling japanese goods because of their artistic um, and their and their perceived sense of design style or or aesthetics and th- th- this is interesting to me because Japan used to be known as the place where cheap stuff got done this would have been right. like the 1960s and now they're seen by their by some of the, uh, the other countries as a place of great art and, and great design which is good <laughs> you know it's all very good um, and, and and so I'm waiting for China to get there I'm waiting for India to get there yeah. where right now they're seen as the place where 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 you know basic things are done and then evolve to more and more uh, I think this is kind of the canary in the coal mine is is the early indicator is that you ha- do you have, you know, made in China mean beautiful design mm. or made in China mean, um, um, uh, you know, something aesthetic? I, I think of this made in China as the world, as a brand. And if it's a brand, what does it say? What is its meaning? Today, I could tell you made in Italy mm. means something mm. or made in Germany means something. So if you ask, no matter what it is, and you say, look, I've got an object in my pocket, it's made in Germany, what do you think it is? Or what do you, th- what do you think it is characteristics? People will tell you right away. Right? They, they have a, an instinctive notion of what that means. Now, today, the meaning and therefore the brand value of, of a Chinese good is typically cheap, good enough, cheap, but it, it might become something else. And that's what you have to ask yourself is how long does that take? Because made in Japan went from cheap to super high quality mm. in about 30, 40 years. And so how long would China take and how long would India take? This is what, 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 what you need to think about, I think. Yes, yes. This is so good. This is so insightful. I love it. This is really good. And, you know, like the whole Made in Japan thing, as an example, it's like maybe it's lost a little bit on the younger listeners, but there was a time when Sony, Sony was the company, you know, that to work for. They were like the apple of their sector, right, really? Oh, absolutely. You know, you got to go back. I mean, the Sony Walkman. Wow, what an innovation that was, you know. But I mean, oh, not just that. You get the Sony camcorders. Yes. The Sony. You had Sony inventing the the the, the VHS tape, although it was called something else. It was it was Betamax, but still, they they pioneered a lot of consumer electronics, and they were just known for quality and, and exceptional miniaturization. And and now perhaps the brand the, the brand has lost some some yeah, shine. Yeah, yeah. But but. It, 
overall the whole nation the whole the whole region what it's how it's seen globally it's it's fascinating how within one life lifetime even even a few, within a few decades you can go from a perception change 180 mm. degrees from being uh, rubbish to being absolutely top of the p you know top of the uh, of the pile I, you know you, you can ask yourself if you go around the world you have all these all these perceptions and prejudices you know like oh you could say made in africa what does that mean you know it's probably mm. agricultural today it's mm. pre-industrial but the, the story of humanity is one where those who are at the bottom strive to move up and and those at the top tend to be uh, uh you know, comfortable and not willing to take risk, and this is why this is why we we we've had progress for for so many centuries. Is that we we've brought more and more people out of the bottom rungs into the middle, at least, and and that's visible in the statistics about poverty, in the statistics about uh, literacy, in the statistics about child mortality and health. And so, you know, on on a, on a, on a on the basis of uh, human progress. This is a very positive thing. It may feel harsh for those tiny numbers in the in the in the at the top of the peak because their their value is being diluted. And yes, we may have a lot of trouble because of that, as we see already. But nonetheless, it's a positive, net positive for the whole world. And and that's a, the the Asia story. And I think fundamentally, twenty first century is the Asia century, as twentieth century was the US century and the 19th century was the UK century because frankly you know there was the you know the Victorian era and then we came came the American era and now we're in the Asian perhaps China I don't know if we could be more specific but but certainly we're seeing that uh, happening and and uh, it may even be only 50 years because it's happening so fast yeah wow this is fascinating Horace did you everybody Absolute pleasure having you on the show. And I feel a real education for me personally, just for selfish interest sitting here and just listening to you. I feel I've learned a lot and just putting a lot of this change into context and framing it, which is really, you know, the, the mark of a, a good analyst is being able to, you know, take the, the data and turn it into a story. And that you've done that so well today and helped us put it into the context of history as well. I know you said, oh, I don't want to turn this into a history lesson, but I think it's, it's important, isn't it? Because everything really does have a precedent in many respects. And, Absolutely. You know, nothing comes out of nowhere. Like you said, with that fascinating story about automotive innovation, which I'm quite unaware of, to be honest, like just how much that was passed around different countries. You know, it, everybody just steals from each other at the end of the day. I guess that's what it is. Well, you know, you know, Steve Jobs had the greatest phrase, you know, real artists, uh, you know, uh, amateurs copy, but real artists steal. What he meant was that you you take it and make it or your own. And it's a yeah. subtle thing. It, kind of, it came from uh, from an artist himself, from uh, uh, Picasso, I believe. And and so that quote is not Steve's his own. But, but it is a very <laughs> important notion that it's like internalizing something and making it better and making – you yeah. know, taking it forward. That's what it's all about. Absolutely. Horace Tedju, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Really enjoyed it. Enjoyed your insights. And I'm sure people listening want to find out more about you. Where would be the best starting point to go and learn a little bit more about your work? Well, I'd love to have you as a, as a listener on, on I mean, as, as a follower on, on Twitter. Um, and you can certainly go to my website, asimco.com to see the 1500 articles I've written over the years. Yeah. But uh, but I, I'm most active on Twitter because then I, you know, I probably write every day there. Yeah. And your podcast as well. Yes. The Critical Path, uh, which is on 5by5.tv. 
You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at ATP.show.